RPC Radio. Radio. Hello, you're listening to Insurance Covered. Welcome to the podcast that covers anything and everything to do with insurance. Coming up in this episode. So what we do know for sure is that flooding will be more severe and it will be more frequent. The latest planning models indicate that by the 2050s, annual losses in the UK from flooding are expected to increase by between 25% and 80%. My name is Peter Mansfield. I'm a partner of the law firm RPC. And in each episode, I'm joined by guests and we discuss an aspect of the wonderful world of insurance. And this week we have Andy Board, and we are going to discuss the work of Flood Re, the specialist UK reinsurer of flood risks. Andy came to insurance fairly late in his career, having initially spent a long period in the communications industry with BT and Vodafone. However, in 2009, he was welcomed into the warm embrace of insurance, first with the BGL Group, then appeared overseas with a private equity company, and after that, a spell at Capita Insurance Services. But then in 2017, he became the Chief Executive Officer of Flood Re, which is what we're going to discuss today. So Andy, a welcome to the podcast and a very happy Christmas to you. Uh, thank you, Peter, and the, the same to you, and I'm looking forward to our chat. I've mentioned the fact that your career started elsewhere. So what was it that attracted you to, to insurance? So I'd been in telecoms throughout my career up to that point, um, as you said in your introduction, and I wanted to do something different. I was offered the role at BGL, which is a personal lines broker in the UK. So I was at the distribution end of the insurance business. And I found something that I wasn't expecting. And that was that personal lines broking is actually very similar to mobile phones, where there's a high cost of acquisition. Uh, retention is critically important. You're often loss making in the first year and you have to sell other products. So what it enabled me to do, even though the model has evolved now, because this was back in about 2009, is to bring a lot of my operational learning from Vodafone and implement it very effectively at the BGL group, which is not something I'd intended to do or was planned, but was a, a really, a really beneficial outcome and a good introduction to uh, my subsequent career in insurance. Um, let's start at the beginning. And uh, could you give us a, um, an introduction to Flood Re, uh, what it is, what its purpose is, and in general terms, how it works? Sure. Uh, so Flood Re is a private-public partnership. It's a partnership between the UK government and the insurance industry in the UK. And our purpose is to make home insurance affordable and available for those people that are living at the very highest risk of flooding. And the way that we do that is we collect a levy, we collect currently £180 million in from everyone that offers home insurance in the UK, and use that fund to subsidise, to cross-subsidise the cost of home insurance for those people that are living at high risk of flooding and otherwise potentially have either limited access to or unaffordably expensive insurance. And you said that you get about £180 million pounds per year. I mean, how many insurers are we actually talking about? So over 60 in the UK that offer um, home insurance. And don't forget that many insurers offer their own insurance through a variety of different brands, a variety of distribution channels. So you might buy from a brand name direct, you might buy it through a high street broker, through a price comparison website. 
and in over 95% of cases, you'll be able to access a policy backed by Fluddery. And you mentioned that it was government backed. What role does the government play in the scheme as a whole? Yeah, so it's we describe it as a joint partnership between government and industry, but it's not government backed as such. So there's no liability that falls on government in the event that Floodery were to exhaust its reserves or our own reinsurance that we buy, and I buy £1.9 billion worth of reinsurance every year on the global capital markets. If we were to burst through each of those, the liability would fall back on the insurance industry, not on government. So it's entirely privately owned, but we're publicly accountable. Because we collect that levy, the £180 million that we spoke about earlier, it's a legal requirement for insurers to pay that it's deemed to be public money, and therefore Parliament is able to scrutinise that we're looking after that public money appropriately. So Floodery corporately and me personally are accountable to Parliament for the appropriate use of that public money. Let's go back to the the origins of Floodery. I mean, how and why did it start? So we started in 2016, and we were set up to solve a very specific problem, which is high premiums. And we were created effectively because there wasn't an insurance regime that worked appropriately for households at high risk of flooding. The previous arrangement meant that premiums were really high if you were at high risk of flooding. And often, even with that high premium, the excess, the amount that you have to pay first before any claim, was very, very high often running into four or even five figures. So for most households, that meant that flood was effectively uninsured. That lack of an effective insurance regime also meant that people often couldn't sell their houses, communities stagnated, and people lived not just in fear of um, the water and of flooding, but actually of the financial ruin that might then result. Since 2016, with the creation of Flood Re, there is now access to affordable home insurance and all of those other risks and community impacts have been mitigated very, very successfully. Brilliant. So it's, it's a, a wonderful example of where insurance improves things, I suppose. But could, could you tell us, first of all, it's obviously presumably that the homes that are covered by this are those homes which are most prone to, to flooding. But are, are there specific homes that fall within the scheme? So we have a set of eligibility uh, in terms of homes that we will cover. And very simply, uh, the scheme is designed to cover residential properties, not commercial property. We're talking about homes that have been built since 1st of January 2009. So there's a very deliberate cutoff because we don't want homes to continue to be developed in the wrong place or in the wrong way. So on floodplains or without the appropriate resilience measures into the future. And the home insurance policy that you buy from your insurer needs to be an ordinary insurance policy, i.e. not a specific business-related policy. And finally, we cover contents for flats, but we don't cover buildings, cover for large flat developments where the landlord is a commercial landlord. All others, so those ordinary policies, we do cover. You talked about the 2009 cutoff point, but I'm not sure if I heard you. Did you say that houses built after 2009 are not eligible for the scheme? So homes built after January 2009 are not eligible Fine. for the scheme. So anything built prior to that date and meeting those other criteria absolutely can be covered. 
And, and how many homes do we think fall within the appropriate categories? So at the end of last year, we covered uh, just under 220,000 homes within the year. And we've covered since we were launched well over 350,000 homes, some move in and some move out of the scheme. And that's because different insurers will have a different view about which properties they want to pass the flood element onto us. But across the UK as a whole, there's something like 5 million homes that are at risk of flooding, but not necessarily that would benefit commercially to the insurer to pass the flood element through to floodery. They might be at low risk of flooding or some very specific circumstances that would need to occur for that flood to manifest with that particular home. So let's say that I own one of those houses, a, a, a pre-2009 home, which is built right next to a, a lovely babbling brook, let's say, mm. which on occasions it ceases to be babbling and becomes a bit more raging, a raging brook. Let's talk through the process. So I go on to a, a, you know, a price comparison website or go to a broker or whatever, and I find an insurer who is prepared to provide cover for my house. Do I, as the homeowner, ask for flood re reinsurance or is that left entirely to the insured sort out? So flood re is all behind the scenes. So using your example, you go onto a price comparison website and you choose the insurer that you want to be insured by. And that's it as far as you're concerned. The insurer behind the scenes, and of course, in the vast majority of cases, this is an electronic transaction that's happening as well, makes a decision on whether or not they want to pass the flood element to flood re, and we charge them a premium based on the council tax band of that particular property, not the flood risk. That's how the cross-subsidy effectively comes into play. And that is then reflected in the price that you end up paying. But the choice of the insurer to pass to flood re is completely independent of any decision the consumer is making. So in your example, you don't even need to know that flood re exists. What you know is you've got affordable home cover. And, and when it comes to claims, does the same apply again? So if, if I wake up one morning to find that my lovely brook has become, you know, a river flowing through my living room, I would just go to my insurer and then they would, in the background, go to flood re. Is that right? That, that's correct. So when your tranquil brook has gone to that raging torrent of a river, that's exactly right. You make your claim to your home insurer. They will work with you and often with a loss adjuster to put that right. Once they have settled that claim, they've done all the work that they need to do with you, put everything right. They will then claim to us to have themselves reimbursed, but it won't get in the way at all of the claim that you're making. And the important piece is you will still be able to obtain home insurance into the future. The fact that you've had a flood claim won't disadvantage you. And that's one of the important things that we bring to the market, that homes that are at high risk and therefore may be subject to repeat flooding are still able to access affordable cover into the future, even after they have been flooded. It's all very clever, isn't it? So long as it works, Andy, as long as it works. So, so does it work? Does flood re achieve what it sets out to achieve? And the simple answer is yes, it absolutely does. We've benefited over 350,000 customers since we launched in 2016. What we see now is for people that are either at high risk of flooding or have had a previous flood claim, 95% of them can get 10 quotes or more. 
So that's very like any other person's experience going onto a price comparison site and seeing pages of quotes. But before 2016, that number was literally zero. And in fact, only 9% of people could see two or more quotes. So it's been transformational in terms of access to choice in terms of who you want to be insured by. But that's only successful if it's affordable. And what we've seen is that in excess of four out of five people have seen a saving of 50% or more on their home insurance. Again, comparing that group of high risk of flooding before floodery and after floodery. And finally, there isn't that hidden cost where you might have excesses running into many thousands of pounds. The excess is now standardized at 250 pounds across all policies. So I repeat, yes, I'm really, <laughs> really pleased to say it has been has been successful. That's brilliant. So, so basically what we're saying is pre-2016, for these sorts of properties that now fall within the flood read scheme, in effect, you could easily end up either with no insurance at all or with insurance in five figures or more, whereas now £250 excess, reasonable premiums and no ongoing insurance risk in the future. That's exactly right. And it's easy sometimes to lose sight of the fact of the individual family stories that sit behind this and just translate it into numbers because every one of those 350,000 policies that we've backed that may have had a flood claim, if they were either unable to access insurance before, they've got that perpetual worry and concern because often they will know they're at risk of flooding or they'll be in the situation of having been flooded before and fearing it happening again because they simply couldn't afford to get home insurance and therefore often couldn't sell their home. So it goes beyond the numbers to making a real difference to uh, to people's lives and it's got that's quite a unique aspect of, uh, of what we do at flood rate and uh, i know that you were at the recent cop 26 up in glasgow so what were you were you speaking there what, what were you doing and what was your role there yeah I, I was at cop 26 and i was speaking and my message was about the fact that adaptation to climate change is critically important So there's been a very strong message that has got increasingly loud over the past year, quite rightly, about climate change mitigation. So keeping the rate of increase of global temperatures to 1.5 degrees or as as close to that as possible. However, equally important is recognising that the weather that we're seeing at the moment is from climate change that's already embedded in the system. So the tragic floods that we saw in the west of Germany and Belgium that that led to something like 200 deaths absolutely tragically earlier this year, are reminders that flooding will be more severe and more frequent. And it's not something that's just going to happen in the future. Therefore, we need to continue to adapt to it now, rather than intellectually thinking it as something that we've got time to solve. We've got to continue to defend against the increasing risk But the risk that we've got now, we have to adapt to, whether that be in properties that we're building now, properties that we're repairing now, or the thinking that we're putting into place for defences and the appropriate level of cover that exists. Okay, I mean, let's unpack some of those issues. First of all, what are the scientific predictions for flooding going forwards, particularly as they relate to, to the UK? Presumably there are estimates and and predictions as to what's going to happen with as and when we hit 1.5 degrees and you know let's hope we don't but if we go higher than that as well 
How is it going to affect us? So what we do know for sure is that flooding will be more severe and it will be more frequent. The situation with any natural catastrophe peril is that it is variable by definition. So you can't predict exactly what will happen. But the latest planning models indicate that by the 2050s, annual losses in the UK from flooding are expected to increase by between 25% and 80%, depending on whether the rate of increase of the trajectory we're looking at by the end of the century is 1.5 degrees or getting closer to three and a half, four degrees. Now, of course, how much of that flooding translates into the losses that I've just described there also depends on the investment and effectiveness of defences that are built against that flooding and also the methods of construction and prevention that take place at an individual property level to protect those homes. So all of those things have to be weighed up in the projections that we uh, we look forward to. So the primary role of, of flood re is to, dare I say, clear up the mess after a flood. But then you're already talking about risk management, risk mitigation, how we prevent or do our best to prevent floods from affecting the highly populated areas, presumably. So to what extent is flood re interested in and involved with that sort of risk mitigation and and risk management in terms of flood defences, flood resilience, etc, etc? How is flood re involved in that? very involved. And I spoke at the beginning of our our discussion about our core purpose being about promoting the availability of affordable home insurance. We have a second part of our statutory purpose, which is we will exit the market in 2039. So we are a short term fix for this affordability problem that we have within the market. And when we exit in 2039, for the market to be able to transition to a position where it can continue to offer home insurance on a risk reflective basis without the cross subsidy that we provide, but still be affordable, a number of things need to be true. And we have an interest in all of them. So briefly, the three things are, firstly, there needs to be continued, sustained and importantly, long-term commitment to flood defences, which is primarily a government responsibility. The second thing is that when flooding does occur, the level of damage and the costs associated with that damage need to be reduced as far as possible. And that's about making sure that within homes, that resilience measures are in place to keep the water out. And when it does get in, it reduces the impact as far as possible. And that's things as simple as air brick covers on the outside of properties, non-return valves in toilets, all the way through to flood resilient kitchens that can literally be back in action within 24, uh, 48 hours after a flood event. The final thing that needs to be true is an effective market so that this scheme can still operate in the same way, but without the cross subsidy. And that all comes down to information. And one of the things that we've been advocating at Flood Re is the use of flood performance certificates. And these would operate in a very similar way to energy performance certificates. So you would see in your home, based on a survey, what is your flood risk? What resilience measures are already in place and therefore improving the resilience? And crucially, what further could be put into place to increase that resilience even further? If all three of those things are satisfactorily true by 2039, 
we should be able to exit, remove the cross-subsidy and home insurance still be affordable. A number of things come out of that. The one which has filled my mind since you mentioned it is the concept of a flood-resistant kitchen. I mean, what what does that mean? Basically, everything's plastic, is it? Or, 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 Or how does that work? So there are a number of construction methods that you can use to make a home more resilient generally. So it does range from things that keep the water out, so that's flood-resistant doors, air brick covers that deploy automatically when the water level rises. Water can, however, get in, so you want to minimise the damage there. So it's about having floor coverings that are appropriate, so vinyl or stone-type floor coverings rather than carpets. Going further, it's about making sure that electrical supply points are high up rather than low down, so you don't need to rewire the whole home. And boilers, for example, are not low level, but are further up the wall. And then fittings in areas that get flooded either change the layout of the home, and this applies particularly to new builds in floodplains, where the ground floor can be redesigned to be parking or garage utility area rather than living space, or where kitchens are in place, for example, that those appliances, particularly the lower levels of those appliances, are effectively wiped clean and not damaged when you have water penetration uh, taking place. It's quite remarkable, actually, having seen properties myself that you go into that have been flooded, and basically just by removing low-level kicker boards and having nothing underneath, no services, no access, means that the water can be got out of the property there isn't then the drying out and the cleanup. And the other thing you mentioned is, is the fact that the floodery will come to an end at some point. I suppose the obvious question to me is, if it is a system which is working and therefore is sort of creates a win for insurers, creates a win for insureds, creates a win for the government as well, why does it need to come to an end? Why can't it just continue? So there's a... A couple of answers to that. The first is, at the moment, it will end because there's a legal requirement. So we were set up and we have a time-limited duration in statute that ends in 2039. So it's, it's not an if or what needs to be true. That will simply happen. The second is that was done quite purposefully, which was when Floodbury was created, it recognised that that was a, a, a temporary solution to a problem. We couldn't continue to cross-subsidise an increasing number of homes, there needed to be a change in the way that that flood management operated more generally, but not all of those actions were known or understood. So by giving floodery the statutory purpose of being able to exit the market having achieved the necessary transition gives us a responsibility to work with the market, with other stakeholders, because we're not going to do these things ourselves in a small reinsurer but we do have a very strong convening power to bring together a wide range of other players in this space that can make the appropriate change. And there's also a key role for government here. So government announced uh, last year a significant increasing in the capital spend for flood defences. So for the previous five-year period, it was £2.6 billion. Uh, For the next period that is just starting now, it's £5.2 billion. What we've been saying is that is an appropriate increase to hold it steady, but we're not in a steady state situation. And actually, there needs to be a much longer term commitment because these massive capital projects require an appropriate amount of time to get them going and crucially to ensure they're appropriately maintained into the future. And do these kind of big 
projects include the use of natural flood defences. So things such as peat bogs, woodlands, particularly on, on slopes coming off, off mountains, better use of floodplains, salt marshes, and so all, all the things that nature does itself to help protect against the high risk of floods or the bad effect of floods, I suppose, is more accurate. Is all of that being as part of an overall scheme, or are we just using lots and lots of concrete? There is a very important part in concrete to hold the water back, particularly for coastal defences or on banks of rivers. And in fact, there's an appropriate and really interesting amount of research going on at the moment into low or zero carbon impact concrete to try and reduce the adverse environmental impact of building flood defences themselves. But you can't simply build the the walls higher and higher against this threat. So you're absolutely right. There's a very significant role for natural flood management, changing the land use to slow the flow of water and to capture water more naturally in the landscape and reduce it more slowly into its natural soakaway areas. And in fact, one of the projects that we've been involved with recently in the northwest of England is looking at how can you pay landowners to make those appropriate interventions within their own land that not only reduces the flood risk further down the valley, but has other benefits as well. So carbon sequestration, habitat enhancement, and possibly even utility value for recreation. And that's the hope behind lots of rewilding projects, isn't it, really, that they become self-financing because they attract mountain bikers or or hikers, walkers, whatever it might be. Precisely right. And there's often other benefits. I think, speaking personally, the more we can move away from looking at these objectives in isolation and looking at them more um, holistically around natural flood management, then there will be more and more benefits. And... uh... Just a little shout out to the Eurasian beavers, which seem to be spreading across the countryside. They'll do their bit for for flood management as well, I hope. But uh, what plans do you have for for floodery um, over the next few years, next five years or so? We've got to absolutely make sure that there is continued investment in flood defences, because without that, then the increasing threat from climate change and also from inappropriate development will mean that unfortunately the risk of flooding will get significantly worse and our role in that is providing evidence and lobbying and making sure government and other entities are doing that appropriate investment. The second and it's something I'm particularly keen on is making sure that we don't make the problem worse and by we I mean society as a whole. So insurance typically means that you have an incident in this case a flood and the insurer puts you back into the same state as you were before, and everything is dried out and looks lovely. However, you're still at exactly the same risk of flooding when the waters come next time. And with climate change, this is no longer an if, this is a when, it absolutely will happen again. So one of the changes that we are making to Floodery with the support of government is from next April, we will be able to support an initiative that we call Build Back Better, And in fact, we used that phrase long before Boris Johnson or Joe Biden or everyone else that's talking about building back better at the moment. And the principle is really simple. And it means that insurers, when they're repairing your home, can spend an incremental amount of money to put you back into a better 
more resilient state against future flooding than you were before. And they can reinsure that incremental cost with floodery, whereas previously they weren't able to. So it's a, it's a really important move, I think, that from next April we'll start to see homes not just put back into the same state, but put back into an improved state against future flooding. No, oh, that's brilliant. No, if, if, if that works, then that will, should hopefully make a huge amount of difference. So that, that's wonderful. Um, finally, Andy, uh, we've come to the end of the main part of our discussion, but um, I always ask our guests, uh, what, what bit of advice would you give? And I'm particularly interested in yours as someone who's started in a different industry and came into insurance. So what bit of advice would you give to someone who's thinking about getting involved with insurance? I think insurance is actually really fascinating. But more than that, it's actually a fundamental enabler of many other businesses, whether that be um, having appropriate insurance cover for something like travel and holidays, which we're all keen to get back to um, at the moment, clearly, but also to commercial trade and energy. So it's it's more than something in its own right. It's a critical enabler to a whole range of other industries. And as such, it's a really interesting, exciting, and actually quite fast-moving as well industry to be to be part of. So I would say to anyone thinking about doing that, I'd say absolutely go for it. Andy, that was absolutely wonderful. Thanks so much for your time. Thank you very much indeed. Thank you very much. And uh, for those listeners who celebrate it, I hope you have a very, very happy Christmas. Thank you for your support throughout the whole of 2021 and see you again in 2022. RPC Radio. Radio. Thank you so much for listening to Insurance Covered. If you enjoyed the podcast, please subscribe and please rate, review and share it. It really does help. Please also listen to another of our podcasts, Taxing Matters, which is hosted by my brilliant colleague, Alice Kemp. Insurance Covered is an RPC production made possible by Joe Burgess and Mary Mitchell. If you want to be a guest on Insurance Covered, please email me at peter.mansfield at rpc.co.uk. Thank you and I hope you have a lovely day.